Well, we've just been having a rocking time, worshiping the Lord, um, uh, enjoying Him, and uh, I, I, I just I love these these times when we are lifting up the Lord and, and we're so excited about Him. And we've been uh, going through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, the reason we've been doing that is so that uh, we can have an ever clearer picture of the one we're worshiping. So. Uh, these times of celebrating, singing together, lifting up the Lord, rocking out for Jesus, that those, those times uh, can be filled with an ever greater understanding and ever greater faith because we know him that much better. So, uh, so that even next week as we gather together and lift up, song, lift up God's name with our voices and with our instruments, the more we do that, we'll have an ever more and more accurate picture. So... If you guys could turn with me to Mark chapter 7, and if you don't have your own Bible, the little pew Bible uh, in front of you is uh, there for your use, and it's chapter, or excuse me, uh, page 712 uh, is where we're going to start. Chapter 7, page 712 in the pew Bible, Mark chapter 7. And, you know, I, I had, um, I, was, I was kind of self-conscious about this message because, uh, you know, we, we've been going through, you know, stories of Jesus' amazing miracles. And, we, you know, we just love those stories. You know, we walk away like, yeah, that's the God in whom I believe. And then we can, you know, sing that song, you know, rock out to Jesus and, and uh, get really excited. And, and, uh, and then, and then I, I get to this, I get to preach on this passage that's about Jesus rebuking people. And... Uh, uh, so I was kind of nervous, like, wow, you know, how, how are people going to walk out of this, like, feeling all jazzed up and pumped up and ready to worship Jesus and excited about Jesus? Um, so uh, I, I hope that what I, I, I bring today, though, by, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, I, I, I pray will be the, the message we need to hear so that when we do worship Jesus, when we do lift it up, and when we do delight in him, it would, it would be with uh, a pure heart. It would be with a, a clean heart. And so this uh, this message is entitled "A Clean Heart." So I'm gonna read this and uh, just go go through this with me and read from the NIV here, starting in verse one. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law, who had come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with water food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Now, now for us today, we all do this. <laughs> we all wash our cups and kettles, and we all wash our hands before eating, and it's just normal uh, but back then, Mark had to insert uh, this extra verse three and verses three and four as an explanation. Back then, it wasn't common or normal to wash hands because before 150 years ago, nobody knew there were germs. Nobody knew your hands were filled with zillions of little bacteria crawling and creeping and just waiting to pounce on you with diseases. So um, people didn't know that before 150 years ago. So this was unusual. Uh, this this practice of washing hands and washing cups and kettles and so on is unusual, so Mark needed to add this explanation to the mostly 
Greek, non-Jewish audience that would have been reading this in the first century. Uh, So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Now, this is, I said this in the last thing, you, you do not want to invite Jesus to lead your uh, how to be a public relations uh, uh, manager, okay? You, you, you don't want him to be your chief speaker, okay? Because he says things like this, verse 5, or verse 6. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commandments of God and are holding to the traditions of men. That's why you don't want to invite Jesus to your PR uh, thing here. Jesus would not teach you to, be, to do good PR, would he? <laughs> and he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father and mother, Whatever help you might have otherwise received from me is korban, that is, a gift devoted to God, uh, then you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. And how, how dreadful to hear that. You think you've been following God and you think you've been following him really well too. And then to hear that, to hear you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You nullify the word of God. In a little bit, I'm going to get into explain just how, how devastating these words really are. Um, verse 14, again, Jesus said to the crowd, or called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered his house, the disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked them. Don't you see that nothing enters a man from the outside that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. From within, out of a man's heart, out of, a man, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Well, what's, uh, what's going on here? What, what, is, what is Jesus trying to get at? And then, and then how does this apply to us? You know, when you first read this, this sounds like a controversy from 2,000 years ago. Like, what do we have to do with this today? How does this impact us? Who, who really cares? 
Um, so let, I'm going to break this down into two parts. Um, verses uh, 1 through 13, what's Jesus doing? He's rebuking the Pharisees for setting aside the commands of God in order to observe their own traditions. All right, now what, what, is that, what does that mean? What is Jesus referring to? What are their own traditions? How do traditions nullify the word of God? How, 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 does, how do you set aside the word of God to keep traditions? Like what, what is that all about? To understand this, we need a better grasp of what I'm calling the delusion of the Pharisees. The Pharisees had a particular delusion uh, that, that afflicted them in a, in a very unique way. And to understand how this applies to us, we need to understand what this delusion was. What's underneath this about what Jesus is, is saying? Well, I would summarize their delusion as this. I'm going to have to stay with me for a little bit as I unpack it. But their delusion is that they pursued outward appearances over inward reality. They pursued the outward appearance over their inward reality. Now, when I say outward appearance, I'm not talking about making yourself look pretty. I'm not talking about being good-looking in the sense that our culture thinks of good-looking today. Um, that's, That's not what Jesus is referring to when he's talking about uh, the Pharisees, uh, the Pharisees didn't look very good. <laughs> as far as, like, if you were to meet one, you wouldn't say, wow, there's a hunk. You know, they um, uh, didn't, uh, that's not what the Pharisees were like. That's not what this, this problem was. I'm talking about vanity. It's a different, it's related, but it's a different issue. Um, uh, what I'm talking about is the, fa- the Pharisees were concerned with their outward appearance of holiness. They wanted people on the outside, they wanted others to think of them as holy, to look at them and say, that guy has it going on with God. All right, He and God must be really tight because look at how, look at what he's doing. Look at all the things I can see in his life. That's amazing. And that was their concern. Now, now Jesus, if, if you were to put together in one spot all of the things Jesus said against the Pharisees, probably... This is the most frequent criticism that comes up. Um, uh, Probably the most crystal clear way of stating it is in Matthew 23. Matthew has been, I've heard it called, a a hunting manual for Pharisees. um, Or a hunting manual to hunt Pharisees. um, Because Jesus just takes all kinds of shots right at the Pharisees in Matthew. In Matthew 23, Jesus says this about them. He says, You Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs. Um, you look really beautiful on the outside, but in the inside you're full of dead men's bones. All right. Another crystal clear picture Jesus gives us in the same sermon. He says, um, you wash the outside of the cup, but you ignore the inside of the cup. All right. And, uh, and then Jesus says, in the inside you're full of robbery and you're full of self, uh, self-interest. All right. Um, so this idea of they work really hard at making the outside look clean and polished and shiny and nice, and on the inside they're full 
of uncleanliness. They're full of death. Um, that was Jesus' chief criticism. So that's, that's going on here. Jesus is actually addressing this in verses 1 through uh, 13. Um, uh, and, you know, you, this issue of hand-washing, for example, looks really holy. You can see they, they did it in public. We, we see that because the Pharisees noticed in public that the disciples weren't washing their hands. This isn't something you went and did in the privacy of the bathroom. This was a very public act to show everyone that you are ritually clean. All right? Um, and this whole issue of Corban is actually another instance of, of the outside, making the outside look really good. Um, you know, uh, in, in this, this whole thing of Corban, if you don't understand it, it it's an old uh, Hebrew word that means to be set aside or to be sacrificed for God. And what they would do is, um, you know, a person could be sort of considered more holy if they would... Um, set aside, you know, the, the money they'd earn. Instead of setting it aside to take care of their parents and their parents' old age, they would use that money as a, as a gift to God. And it was a very public thing. And uh, <clears throat> but, but how many of you, if you've been through this stage of life, you know that if you've, you've been taking care of your parents, you know that that's a very, often a very secret, hidden sacrifice that nobody else uh, sees. Um, it's, a, it's something that doesn't necessarily get public recognition. Um, if, and if you've, if you've been through that uh, stage of life. But this Corban thing is something that everybody recognized and everyone thinks, oh, look how holy he is. He's, he's even giving the money he would give to his parents to, he's giving it to, um, to God. How, how special. Now, still might be wondering, what does this have to do with us? I need to give you a little background. I'm sorry, this is the warning you now. It's the boring part of the, of the message. But, but if you stick with me, it's going to be really good. Um, uh, you got to go back 400 years, okay? 400 years before this, many of you know the, uh, the, the Jews had been taken captive to Babylon uh, and had been there for 70 years, and, uh, and that was a correction, that was a, a punishment God had given in, in order to... Uh, it, it was actually because of all of the idolatry that the, uh, the, the Jewish people and... Um, the Israelites in general had been involved in. Okay, so uh, there'd been this correction. They'd, they'd been sent off to Babylon. They'd been there for 70 years. Okay, and uh, um, and then they they get back and they rebuild their lives. They rebuild a temple. They rebuild Jerusalem. They try to put their lives back together. Well, as a part of that, they they said um, we are never ever going to let idolatry take control again. We remember the huge trouble we got into through our idolatry before exile to Babylon. We're never going to let it happen to us again. And so they, they took this vow. Never will idolatry reign. And they came up with these systems to make sure that there'd never be idol worship in, uh, in Judah again. Um, they came up with the synagogue system. You guys are all familiar with the synagogue system. We have it today. This building right here, I don't know if you know this, this used to be a synagogue, a uh, Jewish synagogue. And, and what the synagogue system was, was instead of uh, three times a year making this journey all the way to, to Jerusalem and, and hearing some of the old stories and some of the law recounted, instead of that, every week, Jews would gather in the synagogue and they would hear religious instruction. They'd hear the law explained 
And, and the, the point was so that every Jewish person, no matter how old or how young, no matter how rich or how poor, uh, no matter what their educational background, every Jewish person would learn the law and would practice the law. Okay? And, uh, and it was an incredible system because it really, it really worked. I mean, every Jewish person, by the time, the, the days of Jesus, knew the law, could recite the law from memory, whether they could read or not. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was quite an incredible system. And to enforce all that, they developed, they trained these experts in the law. We call them, or they're called in Scripture, the scribes. You guys all know who the scribes are. And, uh, and then also at the same time arose this party of kind of, I mean, we might call them today the morality police. This was the Pharisees. And they went around making sure that everybody was keeping the law, everybody was learning the law, everybody was doing the law. And, um, and then they also had this rabbinical system where they would train rabbis, special interpreters of the law, who would travel around and make sure everybody knew the law and how to live it and how to interpret it and, and so on. And, and it was incredible. I mean, if you, if you were to take a time machine to ancient Israel before, before the exile, you would see there would be carved idols on every street corner. There would be statues to false gods. Just everywhere you turn, people would be dressing like the, um, the, 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 um, the, the non-Jewish people, the non-Israelite people all around them. Um, and then if you take that same time machine forward several hundred years to this time in between the exile and Jesus, it would be totally different. You'd see people dressing completely differently. You'd see people, you wouldn't see an idol anywhere. You wouldn't see a carved image. You wouldn't see a, um, you wouldn't see a statue. Um, and, and you would be amazed. You're like, wow, these Pharisees did a great job of getting rid of idolatry. Wow, this is, this is fabulous. Um, everything seemed like it was working great. And then in addition to this, the Pharisees, the elders, and the leaders came up with these traditions. And, and Jesus refers to them, the hand-washing being one of these traditions. They're, they're practices that are not in the law. You don't find them anywhere in the law. But the point of these practices, these traditions, was to keep people from getting anywhere near violating the law. Does that make sense? It's like, um, here's the law, and then we build this, these big barricades around the law called traditions, and the traditions keep us far enough away from violating the law that there's just there's no way we're going to violate that law. There's, there's absolutely no way. It's impossible to violate the law because we've got all these traditions between us and the law. Okay? Is this making sense? So, so now we've got this picture of of here are the disciples of Jesus obviously not doing one of these traditions. They're not publicly washing their hands. And it's horrible because in the Pharisees' minds, like, oh my goodness, that means they're that much closer to violating the law. And look at the trouble we got into last time. We had centuries of violating the law. And uh, we built up all these traditions to keep us from doing that. And here are these disciples of Jesus violating the traditions. Okay? Here's the picture. And yet, as impressive as their system was, as important, as, as amazing as their system was, they failed to understand something really important. 
They've failed to understand something very basic about human nature. They've failed to understand that idolatry is in the heart. Idolatry is something going on inside people's hearts and there might not be any outward signs of that idolatry happening. All right? It, the assumption was if we, if the Pharisees were thinking, if we, if we, um, the reason people fell down and worshipped idols was because they saw the idols. The idols were brought in and they saw the idols and they just sort of, against their will, fell down and started worshipping these idols. Well, we know that's not how idolatry works. If I were to drag in an actual idol and stand it right here, no one, I don't think, hopefully, in this room, would, would fall down and start worshiping the idol, okay? Start worshiping the statue. And that's because those statues and those pictures, those were opportunities for people's longing to worship idols to be, have a sort of a concrete outlet, uh, if, if, if you understand what I'm, what I'm trying to say. People that longing to worship false treasures, that longing to seek after false gods is already inside of people's hearts, already in there, and the statues just became occasions to, to let out that longing. Okay? The idol worship was already there. And, uh, and so, and this is what happened, you guys. <clears throat> the unintended consequence of their valiant efforts to keep people from violating the law actually caused people to violate the law. How did that work? How is that possible? Um, All these traditions were put in place to prevent the violation of the law. You see, this, this is how it happened. All throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the law, you see it again and again, what God was always after was the heart. You see, it hap- you see him say it again and again through all kinds of stories, all kinds of circumstances, all kinds of ways, through all the prophets, it's always the heart he's after. All right? Uh, you see that? E- e- okay, let's just even take the heart of the, of, the, of the law, the Ten Commandments. Even those, in fact, especially those, were about what was going on in the heart. You take the Tenth Commandment, don't covet how would anyone ever know that you're actually coveting? I mean, I suppose, I mean, some of us are maybe a little more obvious than others. You know, you go into a store and you're just like, you know, grab candy and shove it down. I suppose then they would know you're coveting. But, but most of the time, we don't know who's coveting. We don't know that that's happening inside of our neighbor's heart. And the way Jesus explained the law to us in the Sermon on the Mount, we see the other commandments are about the heart too. Even, even murder. Murder, you think, how could that be about the heart Jesus said that if we even uh, hate a brother in our heart, in God's eyes, we've murdered them. Even adultery is about the heart. Uh, Jesus said that if we lust after someone in our heart, in his eyes we've committed adultery. All right? So the law was always about the heart, what was going on inside the heart. And it's, it's very clear... Uh, throughout the whole New Testament, throughout the old Old Testament, and the Pharisees decided to go for the outside and ignore the inside. And and the worst thing about this, the reason this caused the, their focus on the outside, the reason it caused this this 
idolatry in the heart, actually caused the violation of the law, the very law they were trying to protect, is because their focus on the externals let in the worst of all the idols of the heart. It, it actually opened the doorway for the worst kind of inner secret idol worship. What was that inner secret idol worship? It was the worship of the false god of the self. The false god of the self. The self came to be exalted above all else, even God himself, through these traditions. And just think about this with me for a minute. Imagine, I'm piecing this together from a little bit throughout the the Gospels. Imagine what the Pharisees thought about themselves. They they looked around themselves in in the the country of Judah, and they looked at the the freedom from idol worship. There are no idols anywhere, no statues, no pictures. and and, and, And what do they think about that? We're pretty amazing, aren't we? Look what we've accomplished. The prophet Jeremiah was never able to accomplish this. The prophet Isaiah, as amazing as he was, was never able to accomplish this. King Josiah, who actually literally burned down and crushed physical statues and paintings and pictures, even he wasn't able to accomplish this. Why? Why? Moses himself wasn't able to accomplish this. Moses, with all of his demonstrations of power, his ten amazing signs and wonders, the Red Sea, the manna, the water from the rock, even Moses couldn't accomplish this total elimination of idol worship. And look what we've done. Look what we, us Pharisees, have done. Through the traditions of the elders, we've protected the law And now, nobody violates it. And what was the result? The result of this was the exaltation and the enthronement of the God of self under the guise of exalting and enthroning God. The worst and most deceptive of all idolatries. I've heard it called opposition to God in the name of God. The worst of all idolatries. I I say exaltation of self because in this system that the Pharisees came up with, who's really getting the credit? Is it God for supernaturally working righteousness in people's hearts and lives? No, it's the Pharisees. It's the traditions of the elder. They're the ones getting the credit for this amazing job of getting rid of idols. And I say enthronement of self because who's really in control? When you have an external righteousness that people can see and touch and feel and point and say, ooh, you are righteous. When that's what your righteousness is, who's really in charge? Is it God? Or is it the self? The self who's set up this thing that makes everyone else think you're righteous and who's really calling the shots and running the show in their lives? And I say under the guise of exalting God and enthroning God because this was this idol worship, the Pharisees were bl- blind to their own idol worship. 
they had let in the worst of all idols. Under the guise of protecting Judah from idols, and they were blind to it. Because they were doing it, what made them blind to it? Because they were doing it under the guise of exalting and enthroning God. And this phrase, opposition to God in the name of God, when we exalt and enthrone ourselves, we actually deny God his rightful place as the exalted and enthroned treasure of our heart. And how much more deluding and destructive it is when one does this in the very name of serving God. And so for all these reasons, Jesus was incensed at the Pharisees. He was incensed that they exalted and enthroned themselves through their own external self-righteousness. And he was further incensed that they were blinding themselves to the very existence of this idolatry. I mean, this condition that the Pharisees were in was far worse than the grossest immorality you can imagine. That's startling, that's shocking to hear us say that. But God was more displeased with this fake external righteousness than you could pick the worst sinner, the most self-indulgent, apparently self-indulgent sinner you could ever find doing the worst of all evils. And God was more displeased with the Pharisees and their fake external righteousness. That's how bad it was. How did the Pharisees get this way? That's where we get to this next part of the passage, verses 14 through 23. In verses 14 through 23, Jesus explains more accurately human nature as coming from the inside out, whereas the Pharisees, like many people, believed that human behavior comes from the outside in. Now, what do I mean by that? Start off a little illustration. Happened yesterday in my family, and I, I won't name names, of course. Um, and I'm sure none of you can relate to this because I know my family's the only one where anyone struggles with this. But I heard these from the lips of someone saying, but he made me do it. Nobody's ever heard that before, right? But he made me do it. All right? Um, that was That's the basic, and guess what? It gave me an opportunity for me to a little preview of my message. Um, uh, And Jesus is confronting that belief. That's what the, when I say the Pharisees believed in behavior comes from the outside in versus from the inside out, the Pharisees had this basic belief that the reason anyone does something bad, the reason someone does something wrong is because something happened to them, all right? The reason why people have idols is because this Statue's been dragged in, and the people are like, oh, I guess we'll fall down and worship it. Um, you know, unknowingly, unwittingly, unwillingly, just fall down and, and worship the idol. Um, that, that was sort of the, the foundation of their, of their, of their delusion, um, was this belief that actions come from the outside in. When Jesus was setting them straight, saying, you know, he, he says it several times, verse 15, he says, nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him, rather it is what comes out of the man that makes him clean, or unclean, excuse me. 
And, uh, and then he gives this list of all the things that come from inside and go outside. All right? And that's where it's really coming from. So, so in short, Jesus is correcting this, this mistake. Now, I, people are probably still asking, okay, how does this apply to us, Andrew? I, I, I need something tangible, something to hold on to. This still sounds like a controversy from 2,000 years ago. How does this all apply to us? Well, well, first of all, I think this does apply to us in a really important way. We haven't had Pharisees around, actual Pharisees, for a really long time. Their, their uh, group died out probably around 300, uh, 400 A.D. after, after Jesus. Um, and uh, they, stopped ha- they didn't really have any influence on the rest of the world as far as, you know, People didn't, you know, come say, oh, how can, you, how can I be a Pharisee? But in the very first century of the church, when we read Paul's writings, he was writing mostly to Greeks who had little to no understanding of uh, Jewish history, Jewish, Jewish background, or the Jewish law. He was writing to them, and especially if you read the book of his letter to the Colossians or his letter to the Galatians, you see right in there that somehow some of that Pharisaic, some of those Pharisaical ideas got sewn into the early church um, uh, that was growing up all around the world. Even if they had almost no other Jewish influences, some of that Pharisaism got seeded, got got embedded into those um, new Christian communities. And so we see right there, just because you don't have this uh, this background, um, the church is still vulnerable to this Pharisaism. And uh, let, let's just uh, take a look at this. I want to take the last um, few verses, verses 14 through 23 first. And I, and I would contend that we still believe, we still believe in this root misunderstanding of behavior as coming from the outside in. We, I, I would contend that we still, and I think you don't have to go very far to find evidence of it. Okay, um, if you, uh, you know, and, and this is, we hate hearing this because I mean we all want to believe we have hearts of gold. And you know, I, I used to, you know, work at a um, as a school teacher at a Christian school, and you know, if we had to have a disciplinary conference, you know, bring the parents in. It's like, well, you know, little Johnny um, committed arson and burned down the whole building, and the parents are like, oh, but he's got a heart of gold. He just loves Jesus. You know, so we we hate hearing this. We we hate hearing this idea that our behavior doesn't come from the outside and actually comes from the inside out. And and if you don't believe me, just take my little test. My little test. Do I ever? This is to ask yourself. Don't tell your neighbor. Ask yourself. Do I ever excuse my own behavior with explanations of? Outside influences. Do I ever excuse my own behavior with explanations of outside influences? Just, just ask it. Do I ever justify my wrongdoings by shifting blame from myself to others and to circumstances? Are others the ones who are actually at fault for uh, what's coming out of my heart? Do I ever justify my wrongdoings that way? Do I ever explain away 
my bad attitude and actions with phrases like, I would have done differently given another circumstance. I would have done very differently given another circumstance. Now, I don't, I don't want to downplay the fact that certain circumstances, certain life situations put tremendous pressure on us to, and, and that huge pressure brings us often to the breaking point. And, uh, and then, of course, then there's people the Lord has delightfully anointed to come into our lives and just irritate us, um, get under our skin. Nobody in this room, for me, I know, obviously. But, um, and I, I don't want to downplay any of that, but I would contend that that's actually, what the Lord's doing there is actually using those circumstances and those people to expose what's already there. Instead of, instead of saying, it's their fault, it's, it's the fault of these circumstances, that that's why I reacted the way I did. And, and we, really need, we really need to figure this out, you guys, because until we take responsibility for that, and I'm really preaching to myself here. <laughs> until, we take, until I take responsibility for this, we're not going to be able to get on our knees and draw from God the power we need to live the victorious Christian life. As long, the more, the, as, long as we keep excusing behavior um, as coming from the outside in, we're not going to get on our knees and be like, God, I can't, it's my heart that's a problem. God, you fix it. You do something about it. We won't reach that point. The, if we're always seeing the behavior is coming from the outside in. Um, one last test question. Um, do I imagine God to be satisfied with my apparent obedience? The obedience that people can see from the outside. All right. It's a little test question. If you still, still see if you still have this root misunderstanding. Um, the second thing this way this whole chapter, this whole passage applies to us, is that we still nullify the word of God by our traditions. We still nullify the word of God by our traditions. And I, I'm scared to even say this. I, I, I know it's actually true in my own heart, but it's something we got we to gotta face. We still ignore God God's lordship over our hearts by focusing on externals. We, we still do that. Um, we still gut out God's actual requirements of us, which are focused on the purity of our hearts and focused on actions coming out of the overflow of our hearts. We, we, we still gut it and nullify it with our fussy, busy, even sometimes very strict adherence to keeping up religious appearances. We pour our energies into making sure we're looking okay on the outside with our fussy, busy strictness when, even to the detriment of, of, of letting God speak to our hearts. We still use this, just like the Pharisees did, to secretly exalt ourselves and enthrone ourselves even above God himself. So that at the end of the day, when it comes time to evaluating how we've done today, a little quiet secret patting ourselves on the back with our own praise, our own admiration of ourselves, rather than of God for a job well done. And if you don't believe me, you can take my little test, another little test. 
do I ever, do I ever live to look impressive on the outside to the neglect of what's going on inside of me? Do I ever live to look impressive? When, I, when, I'm, when I'm thinking through what behavior I'm going to do, what words I'm going to say, what actions I'm going to take, is the deciding factor for me, well, well look, people will be impressed by that. People, that'll make an impact on other people. Do I ever justify my disobedience to God's actual desire by an external behavior that makes me and others think I've done God's will? This whole Corban thing that Jesus was talking about is a perfect example. God wanted these grown children to love their parents. He wanted them to love their parents. And... Uh, and, and they replaced it with this thing that looked more holy on the outside. Do we ever do that? Do I ever do that? Do I ever think more highly of myself after performing a duty which makes me look better in the eyes of others? So let's say I get some praise and some admiration for whatever, and, and people come and tell me that. And, and when I walk away, my secret consolation, my secret comfort that I give myself isn't, Jesus, you were pleased with that. You liked that, didn't you? My secret consolation is, they liked me. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Do I ever feel more peace because my behavior makes me feel more in control? All right, just like the traditions of the elders made the Pharisees feel like they were in control of protecting the law. It made them feel like, whew, you know, those ancient Israelites, they sure fell for that idolatry, but not us because we got all these traditions of the elders surrounding the law. Nobody's going to violate it. We're, gonna, we're, we're in sync with God. Everything's going great. And that's where their peace came from. Their inner peace came from feeling like their behavior made them more in control. Do you ever get inner peace? Not because you know God's in control and God's running the show, but do you ever get inner peace because you've so arranged your life and your circumstances that you feel more in control? So what's the antidote? What's the antidote to this? I'm going to say the same thing basically three times, in case you don't catch it. First of all, the first antidote, seek the Lord instead of falling for the external behavior that's just been handed to you. Seek the Lord. Uh, I'll give you an example from my own life. You know, I, when I became a Christian, I came from outside of the Christian tradition. I had zero exposure to Christianity. I didn't know what it was about, what it was like. I... And so I came in and I knew I was, was getting to know the Lord, but, you know, I looked around and, and there's an obvious culture I had to figure out, too. You know, people behave a certain way. People, you know, shake hands afterwards and smile at each other. And, you know, and you're supposed to kind of dress a certain way and do certain actions. And, you know, I looked around, people are like going like this. And I don't know what it means, but everyone's doing it. You know, and, and uh, you know, people say, amen, you know, afterwards. And I'd be like, okay, I guess I better say that because everyone's doing it. That's what you do in this culture. And, 
you know, I, I remember one time I was a new Christian. I was wearing a baseball cap here at church and didn't, you know, and then someone came up, a very dear person, and was like, we don't wear baseball caps in church. I, I didn't know. I didn't even know. I had no idea that that was like a tradition. You don't wear baseball caps in church. And, um, uh, you know, so, so I had to learn this external culture. Well, the danger of that is that, you know, you can go for, you, you, you can feel like you're really holy and spiritual and special because you've adopted this external behavior that makes everybody, that looks like you're doing the right thing. But you haven't sought the Lord. Lord, what do you want? What are you pleased with, Jesus? Where, what do you want me to do with this? How do you want me to behave? And then, you know, all the amening and the dancing and the raising hands, that can definitely be genuine if it comes from the overflow of the heart, what, the, what you and the Lord are doing with each other, okay? So, so in other words, you, you can't go home and be like, you know, I was really holy today. I was waving my hands, woo! And I was saying, amen, you know. Um, that, that's not the external stuff that people can see. That's not what makes you holy. Seek the Lord first, okay? I told you I'd say the same thing three times. Pursue a secret love affair with Jesus, whether or not anybody can see. All right? Whether or not anybody can see. You know, there's, a, and I hate, ew, I'm scared even a minute, but it's very vulnerable. I'll just admit it. You know, sometimes there's been, there's been times, you know, like, you know, should I do this or not do this well? You know, um, I, I won't really uh, come across as really spiritual and holy in other people's eyes if I do this or don't do that. Um, you know what? Even if nobody can see, pursue this secret love affair with Jesus. Um, and, and, and it, you know, it's the most beautiful thing when you start, when you start doing that. You know, you... you you, you uh, craft little dates, just him and, and you. And, and you get to know each other and you express your love to him and then you let him just pour an avalanche of his love on you and nobody else gets to see it and it's the most beautiful thing in the world. It's the most beautiful thing in the universe even though no human eyes might ever get to see that. And then lastly, aim for God's glory over your own in all that you do. Aim for God's glory. That when you do something, your hope, your prayer, your longing, that the result of it might be people will fall more in love with Jesus because of his beauty than fall in love or be impressed with you. Uh, that when you do something, people would, would uh, walk away saying, wow, that Savior that you serve, that he's something, isn't he? Not they walk away and be saying... Well, that Andrew, he is something special, isn't he? You know, that's, that's not the goal of your behavior, your actions, what you do. Your goal, the goal we need to have is to, is, is to glorify God. All of this, the worship team could, could uh, come up now. All of this is because God wants the heart. God wants your heart and if the external behavior flows out of that, and it will, that's fabulous. But God, first and foremost, wants your heart. And so as, as we sing this, uh, as we go through this closing song, you know, if, if you need to get alone with the Lord, that's fine. But also don't worry about, like, oh, I better go forward because then people will see me. I mean, that, you don't have to go forward. You can just be in your seats. But I just encourage you now, 
talk with God about this right now. Work on this with God right now. Seek the Lord about this. Um, yeah, I don't have anything more to say. So let's uh, let's um, let's worship together. And after this first song, I'll I'll sort of do a closing benediction. And so.